Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, we uh, welcome you to call and we'll talk about them here. If you see things differently than the host on any subject that has ever been discussed here, feel free to give us a call and balance comment. The number to call is uh, 844-484-5737. Now, it looks to me like our last open line just filled up, so our lines uh, are probably full, and you'll probably get a busy signal if you call right now. But if you call in a few minutes with lines opening all the time, you may get through. I hope you will. The number is 844-484-5737. Our first caller today is Ed, who's calling from Detroit, Michigan. Hi, Ed. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Uh, hello, Steve. Um, had a question. I had a debate with a relative of mine over the weekend who said the temple was not destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but in 134 and I go, I've never heard that before. And then he went on to say, in the millennium, they'll reestablish the sacrifice system as a remembrance. And then he went on to say, the sacrifice system in the Old Testament was strictly for remembrance. So I quoted uh, Hebrews and said, what about the sin offering? And his response was, I get my information from the Holy Spirit, and I don't listen to people. So my double question there, how do I respond to that trump card they, that is thrown? And what about the previous, was that a theology or something I've missed along the line? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, whenever someone says, uh, don't, don't confuse me with facts because I know what's true because I got direct revelation from the Holy Spirit, that's a person that you really, uh, that, that brings the conversation to a dead end. Really, there's no... Uh, no way to argue against them. You can say, well, uh, okay, well, then you're welcome to believe that. Uh, but you're not the only person who has the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of people who have the Holy Spirit who do not, frankly, uh, understand it the way you're talking about. But we can just leave it at that. We don't have to win. You know, that's the main thing about arguments. We don't have to win them. We just have to be reasonable. We have to, we have to inform people of what the facts are. And then it's up to them to resist it or believe it. I mean, that's how God treats us. God never forces us to believe. Uh, there are consequences for our not believing, and he makes that clear enough, but it's still up to us to believe or not. And when we're arguing with somebody about really just about anything, uh, we can't make them believe what we're saying if they're determined to believe something else. So we've only done our duty if we have uh, faithfully and, uh, you know, reasonably presented the data. Uh, and if, if they want to deflect, well, who can stop them? You know, I mean, you've got a strange relative there who is basically unfalsifiable in his beliefs because whatever you say, he says, well, <laughs> Holy Spirit out trumps, uh, out, out, you know, he trumps you, you know. Uh, he he out, out classes you, outranks you, and therefore I don't care what you think. In a way, he's saying, I don't really care what the Bible says. I've got the Holy Spirit. Who needs the Bible? Now, as far as the temple being destroyed in 135, now, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. However, there, were, there was even more destruction done to the site in 135 after another rebellion, the Bar Kokhba rebellion. And, uh, and actually, the Romans actually plowed up the foundations of the temple on that occasion. And uh, actually, Micah had predicted that 
that uh, Jerusalem will be plowed like a field. And the Romans actually used plows to uh, plow up the stones and so forth in 135 A.D. So he has some information that's true, but if he says the temple wasn't destroyed in 70 A.D., it certainly was, as Jesus said it would be in that generation. And uh, so, I mean, he's, he's got some facts right, but uh, he's, what, he, what he thinks is not true is where he's wrong. As far as sacrifices being for remembrance, that's a common view of uh, dispensationalists. They believe the temple will be rebuilt in the millennium after Jesus comes back. The Jewish priests of the order of Aaron, the Levitical priests, will be uh, back in place offering the same animal sacrifices you read about in, uh, in Leviticus, or at least the ones that you read about in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47. Um, uh, this is not possible. If the New Testament is true, it's not possible because the book of Hebrews tells us that the sacrifice Christ offered is the final sacrifice and it, never, it was never possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins anyway. Now, the answer that they usually give is, well, what your friend said. Your friend said, well, these, these sacrifices will not be for atonement. Of course, Jesus did that. Uh, but they will be uh, for a remembrance. Now, what they normally would say, and your friend may have meant to say this and not known how to articulate it well, they usually would say, well, the Old Testament sacrifices that were offered before Jesus came were intended to foreshadow Christ. They kind of, they, they looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ. And they say, in the same way, the sacrifices that will be offered in the millennial temple will be just uh, symbolically uh, remembering the death of Christ. And there's a couple of problems with that. One, is the only passage they can find, really, that talks, well, there's maybe two in the Old Testament that they would think might refer to a future a third temple. But the main one is in Ezekiel. And there, as it describes the sacrifices being offered in that temple, which is, by the way, never represented as a millennial temple, but that's how dispensations understand it. In uh, Ezekiel 45:15, it says, One lamb should be given from the flock of 200, from the rich pastures of Israel, these shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement for them, says the Lord God. And then in verse 17, at the end of the verse, it says, He, meaning the prince, shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. And then verse 20, it says, For everyone who has sinned unintentionally or ignorance, thus you shall make atonement for the temple, as it describes these sacrifices. So, so if you're going to use Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47, that description of the temple, to argue that there will be sacrifices in a future temple, and by the way, I would just say Ezekiel never mentions that this will be a future temple at the end of the age, uh, that they're reading that into it. But if you're going to use that to make that point, then you have to also take it at what it says, which is that these sacrifices will be offer an atonement which suggests that this temple system described in Ezekiel could only apply to a time prior to the death of Jesus, historically, because after the death of Jesus, there will be no more animals offered as atoning sacrifices. So your friend, uh, you know, he's, uh, he, he's one of those uncorrectable types who's sure that he's got it by direct revelation, even though what he believes is not agreeable with, with what the Bible says. Well, thank you. At least you give me a little uh, reference point on it, because I was kind of thrown. I've never heard that for remembrance before. So, yep, <laughs> that's what they say. All right. Thank well, you very you. much. Good Bye. talking to you. Bye now. 
Uh, John from Little Rock, Arkansas. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hey, how's it going, Steve? Good. How would you feel if uh, any portion of the New Testament was proven to be written by somebody other than the author, like as if it was uninspired? How would that affect your thoughts and actions? Well, if, if a book of the New Testament could be shown to be written by somebody who did not write with apostolic authority, then I would have to doubt that book, uh, whether it's uh, reliable or whether it's authoritative. Now, there are a few books of the New Testament that nobody believes were written by apostles. For example, nobody believes that Mark was an apostle or Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts. And uh, I don't know very many people who believe that Hebrews was written by an apostle or, or necessarily Jude either. And uh, so these are books that, uh, if they have apostolic authority, it's not because an apostle wrote them, but because the writer was so close to an apostle that his work was essentially uh, under the scrutiny of the apostles and could not have been released and published without their approval, and therefore their imprimatur is upon them. So, for example, Mark is known to have, or at least historically, is said to have been writing what Peter preached. So in Gospel of Mark, although Mark's not an apostle, Peter is, and the Gospel of Mark is said to have Peter's authority behind it. Luke, of course, was a close companion of Paul's, who was an apostle. And it's almost certain that he wrote at least the book of Luke, and apparently Acts also, during Paul's lifetime while he was with Paul. So, you know, in other words, the idea is that these books could not have been released to the church without Paul's approval, and Luke would never have wished to not have Paul's approval on them. So they could have apostolic authority even if the writers were not apostles. But yeah, if there was, if so, if there was some book that is found in our Bible today that somehow could be proven not to be apostolic, then it wouldn't belong in our New Testament. It, wasn't, it wouldn't have. So what you're saying is it would not affect you at all, except well, the, that you might throw away some of the doctrines that are only taught in that particular passage. Well, right, yeah. If, if, if that particular book had unique doctrines that are not taught anywhere else in the New Testament, those doctrines would have to be called into question in my mind. If, if, but I don't know of any book like that, and I, I don't think scholars do either. It's a hypothetical question. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you have to realize what it would take to prove any of these books Absolutely. to be non-apostolic. You know, it may not be entirely possible to prove that all of them are apostolic, but since the early Christians from the apostolic times recognized them as coming from the hands of apostles, um, I mean, they could be wrong, but they're not likely to have been wrong. And certainly nobody can prove that they were wrong. So we're, that's really not a danger at this point, but it wouldn't bother me if, I mean, I'd be glad to know it. If we're, if we're accepting yeah. a book, if we're accepting a book of the New Testament as apostolic and, and we've been wrong and it's not, and it isn't, well, then get rid of it as soon as possible. But I don't think that'll I don't think that'll apply to any of the books that are there. They went through extreme scrutiny for actually several hundred years before they were all accepted. It wasn't until yes, absolutely. 397 A.D. that they were all finally, uh, you know, had the stamp of approval. And that was after much investigation. All right, then that answers my question. All right, thanks, John. Good talking to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. Uh, Brandy from Nampa, Idaho. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, I, my question is, so I'm married to a man that was married before, and there's a lot of um, evidence in the Bible that says that once you're married, you become one flesh, and no, nothing will make part that. But in Matthew, it says that 
the only thing that only reason for divorce would be is safe sexual immorality and his wife never did stop sleeping with other people her sex wife sorry um mm-hmm. never did stop sleeping with other people i've never been married and he's divorced now and we're married now does that make me an adulteress no and him no a, i mean no you said you said his wife was sleeping around yes all right well yeah, then he, yeah. he had grounds for divorce then he had grounds okay. for divorce. Now, if a, if a man has grounds for divorce and he gets a divorce, see, you mm-hmm. could have grounds for divorce and still not get a divorce. You could say, well, my wife is giving me grounds for divorce, but I'm not going to divorce her. But if a man mm-hmm. does divorce her or if she divorces him and she's given mm-hmm. him grounds for divorce, well, their, their marriage is over then. And uh, if you aren't married, you're single. Uh, you, okay. you know, marriage, marriage is defined by an existing covenant. If that covenant mm-hmm. has come to an end, and that's what that's what divorce is, if divorce is legitimate, then mm-hmm. of course the man who is legitimately divorced is not in a marriage covenant, and therefore he's a single man, and he can marry, and whoever marries him right. is not cheating. But the the problem is, of course, that there are people who mm-hmm. get divorces and they're not legitimate divorces. They get divorces without any biblical grounds at all, and therefore mm-hmm. even though the court the court grants them a dissolution of their marriage. God doesn't, because they have no grounds mm-hmm. for it. And if that person who is in that situation remarries, of course, then they're entering into a second marriage while they're already in one marriage. And that's what Jesus says, uh, you know, creates a situation of adultery there in the remarriage. So okay. if a person is divorced, there's one of two possibilities. Either he had grounds for it or he didn't, or she. If they had mm-hmm. grounds for divorce, I believe they're as free to remarry as if they'd never married in the first place. They're, uh but if they don't have grounds for divorce, then they really need to work on reconciliation with their spouse. All right. Thank you. That was my question. Have a great day. Okay, Brandy. All right. God bless <laughs> Bye. you. Bye. All right. Uh, we have some lines that have opened up. We also have several lines uh, uh, with callers on them we're going to talk to. But if you want to call at this time, it is possible to get through at 844 484 that's 844-484-5737. Derek from Vancouver Island, uh, British Columbia. Welcome. Uh, hi, Steve. Hey, thanks hi. so much for taking my call today. I want to say, first off, a pr- such a privilege to talk to you, uh, and may God continue to bless this extremely valuable ministry that you have. Well, thank you. Lots of people talk to me every day, and I don't think they think it's that big a privilege, but they, <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, my wife is nodding that it, it is a privilege. Okay. My wife thinks it's a privilege, right. so that's, that's good. If she thinks that. Yeah. All right. Well, I do today for sure, yes. And, uh, <laughs> well, hey, thanks my, for calling. My question, yeah. My question today, um, it deals with the church having female pastors. Uh, our church has had this prospect come up recently, and, and our church leadership's trying to decide where to go on this issue. So I wanted to ask you biblically about female pastors. Would you say yes or no, and why or why not? Well, uh, first of all, when we say female pastors, we're talking about women in a very particular, uh, specific role in the church out of many other possible roles that people can hold in the church, uh, in the body yeah. of Christ. Um, the pastoral role in New Testament times was occupied by what we call elders or overseers. They're called presbyteroi, which is the Greek word for elders. 
which means older men, literally. Presbyteroi means older men. And the same were also called episkopoi, which means overseers. So they're translated bishops in some translations. So uh, the same individuals were the uh, older men and the overseers, the presbyteroi and the episkopoi. Now, we don't know of any case, or there might have been cases we don't know about, but there, we don't know of any case in the first century when a church had an individual pastor because the, the, uh, the elders, which were a group of men in each church, were told to do the pastoral ministry. They were commanded by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 uh, in verses like 1 through 4. And, uh, and also by Paul in Acts chapter 20, I think around verse 28, that uh, the, the elders were told to shepherd, which is the, the word pastor means shepherd, to shepherd the church of God. Uh, when Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he greeted all the saints with their overseers and deacons. They didn't, didn't say anything about the pastor because they apparently didn't have a pastor. They had overseers and they had deacons, like all the churches. Mm-hmm. We, actually, we actually don't know of any case of a church in, in the apostolic times that had an individual called the pastor. And, there, and okay. therefore, there's nothing, nothing said in the Bible about uh, an individual pastor. Um, so if we ask, well, should, can a woman be a pastor? Well, we have to ask ourselves, uh, okay, the Bible doesn't say anything directly about a pastor, but it talks about elders. It does talk about overseers. And they are the ones who, in the first century, were the pastoral ministry of a given congregation. They had multiple elders, uh, a pastoral body or team, and and they would do the teaching as well. Now, it would appear that, <clears throat> excuse me, that these elders were the ones that Paul's referring to in First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve through fifteen, when he says, "I don't permit a woman to mm-hmm. to teach or have authority over the men of the church." Um, it's immediately after that that he begins to list what an elder must be or an overseer must be. And he said, one thing, an elder must be the husband of one wife and so forth. So it's very clear that Paul's thinking in terms of only men in that particular role. Now, mm-hmm. you know, but that doesn't mean that Paul had any interest in holding women down. There's actually a case in Romans where uh, there's a couple, apparently a married couple are mentioned, who are said to be of note among the apostles. Now, most scholars these days seem to think that that phrase, of note among the apostles, means that this couple were both recognized as being among the apostles. They were apostles. Um, hmm. We know that Priscilla and Aquila, though they were never called apostles, they were a married couple that, that taught uh, a man, not, not publicly, but in private, named Apollos. That's in Acts chapter 18 at the end of the chapter. Great. Um, so Paul was not against women uh, being in ministry of sorts. Uh, we know that Phoebe in uh, Romans 16.1 is referred to as a deaconess, which is apparently the female version of a deacon. Uh, on the other hand, the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonis, which simply means a servant. So she was a female servant, and the deacons were male servants. Um, but there, there were lots of things, lots of ways in which a person could serve. Paul listed over 15 gifts of the Holy Spirit, which each defined some contribution that a person could make to the overall health and ministry of the body of Christ, and that everyone should be doing whatever it is God gifted them to do toward that end. And mm-hmm. therefore, if a person's not an elder or a teacher uh, or, or what we would call a pastor, 
Uh, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of things, a lot of work to be done that they could do. Now, I have to, sure. I have a feeling that in our modern church, in other words, the, the short answer is no, I would not choose a woman to be in the pastoral role. But the short answer uh, needs to be clarified by these considerations. We do not have in our modern churches usually the kind of setup that Paul assumed should be in the churches. In other words, we have churches that have deviated from the New Testament pattern. Now, is this an abomination? I don't know that it is. I don't know that the Bible says we have to follow the New Testament pattern, but I always think the church is better off when they do. And yeah. Uh, yeah. so I, if, I were, if I were in a position to be making decisions about that, and I don't wish to be in that, in that position, but if I were, I would have to say uh, a pastor in the modern church is sort of a, um, analogous to what the elders were in the apostolic church. And the, Paul would not, he specifically said he didn't put women in that role. But that doesn't mean women can't be missionaries, that they can't be teachers of other sorts that are not elders. Uh, it doesn't mean they can't do uh, the full range of things that Christians can be gifted to do. It, the, the reason people object to keeping women out of that particular role is because the churches, uh, especially in the second century and later, evolved into the kind of bodies where the, there was a leader who had something resembling political type of power over the congregation. The, uh, mm -hmm. What was called the monarchial bishop developed very early on in the early second century. Uh, Ignatius refers to these monarchial bishops in the churches. Uh, and, and actually in Third John, even before the death of John, he speaks of a man who seems to put himself in that position called Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence and who would kick people out of the church, even, even John's messengers, uh, just on a whim or, or because he, didn't, he wasn't submitted to John. This just shows that there was corrupt, corruption in the leadership of the church early on, um, and, and it wasn't something that John favored or that Paul would have favored or that Jesus would favor. Jesus said mm -hmm. to the disciples, don't let anyone call you rabbi or father or teacher even. You're all brothers. And he says, whoever wants to be chief among you, let him be the slave and servant of all. Now, today, the person who's the pastor doesn't seem very much like the slave and the servant of all. He seems more like he's the CEO of a corporation. It seems like he's yeah. the one who gets to call the plays and, and he expects the rest of the church to follow his He'd use the word his vision. I would use the word agenda. Uh, you know, the pastor sets an agenda, and he recruits the church to pay for it and to stand behind it and to and to uh, you know make it happen. Uh, that is what secular corporations do. That's not what a body does. That's not what a church does. That's not what a family does. And that's the problem we have. So, because being a senior pastor today is very often seen as a power, a place of power rather than of slavery. Jesus said, you'd be the slave to do this. Uh, you know, to be the chief, you should be the servant and slave of all. But in our churches, we have churches that are set up upside down so that the person who's considered to be the, the leader is the one who's got all the power and the one that everyone has to obey and so that kind of stuff. Now, that yeah. simply isn't, that's not biblical. But because of that, there are ambitious people who want to be pastors who would never qualify and would never even want to be pastors in New Testament times because of the cost to themselves, the servanthood, the, the martyrdom that usually accrued to them. Um, modern pastors are not seen that way. Modern pastors are seen as 
the power brokers in the in the church. Not always. Thankfully, there's churches that this isn't true of, but I've been in a lot of churches, and I have to say this is more often the case than not. And because of that, that's the only reason why people are saying, well, women should be allowed to be pastors too. Well, why? Because women can be CEOs, they can be doctors, they can be lawyers, they can be airline pilots, they can be anything a man can be, so they should be allowed to have the privilege of being a pastor too. Well, pastor, being a pastor isn't a matter of privilege, it's a matter of God's calling. It's a matter of qualifying on God's terms. And once you are one, it's a matter of being the slave of everybody else. That's what Jesus said. But of mm -hmm. course, as long as pastoral role is seen as a place of privilege and power, which is the opposite of what Jesus set things up to be, and therefore it's the opposite of the church, um, well, then, then of course there's going to be people who protest if they or their group, uh, like women, for example, can't be in that particular role. Anyone who really wants to serve, let's put it this way, anyone who doesn't want to serve is not qualified to be a leader anyway, according to Jesus. And anyone who really does want to serve will be glad to serve in any role that the church welcomes. Um, and Great. so, you know, so any, any woman who says, because I'm a woman, you can't keep me out of the role, I'd say, well, I think Paul could if he wanted to. And the fact that you are pressing for your privilege means you're not exactly the kind of human being, whether you're male or female, you're not the kind of person that should be given spiritual authority because you want power and you want privilege. Uh, no one should lead the church unless they've renounced that and doesn't have any of that in their motivation. So we live in a messed up time, but that would be thoughts uh, to consider when you're considering a pastor to fill the pulpit, if you've got to do that. All right, I appreciate your call. I need to take a break here. We got another half hour coming, so don't go away. The Narrow Path is listener supported. If you'd like to help us pay the radio bills, you can write to us at The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or you can go to our website. Everything's free there, but you can donate it there if you want. It's thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds, so don't go away. As you know, the Narrow Path Radio Show is Bible radio that has nothing to sell you but everything to give you. So do the right thing and share what you know with your family and friends. Tell them to tune in to the Narrow Path on this radio station or go to thenarrowpath.com where they will find topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse-by-verse -verse teachings, and archives of all the radio shows. You know listeners supported Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Share what you know. Welcome back to The Narrow Path. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible, about Christianity, or you disagree with the host about something and want a balanced comment, we would love to hear from you. It looks like uh, when I began to speak a moment ago, we had one line open. At this point, it looks like someone's ringing in on that line, and you may not be able to get through right away. But try a little later. The number is 844 484 57 37. All right. Our next caller is, let's see, it's going to be Sarah from Knoxville, Tennessee. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Hi, hi, Steve. This is Sarah. You just said that. and uh, You 
introduced my letter that I sent to you by email yesterday, but then got pulled away because you're... Oh, yes, uh, yes, yes. I have it right before me. Yes. Yes, your console came back up. So I went, oh. I did write to you. It was kind of a teaser, so I thought, ah, maybe that's my message, but I just need to go ahead and... I did write you an answer, though, didn't I? Yes, I I wrote you an answer. Um, I haven't received it yet, but that could be our email system. You know how it is. Okay, I thought I did, but go ahead. If you want, uh, no, did you I, want to raise that I same question? Uh, yes, I was wondering, um, just because of something that came up in our small group meeting, um, kind of a little bit of a conflict, um, where someone was basically saying that there, that Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor. He just likes to have straight top talk, and you'll be held to all your words that come out of your mouth. So if you use sarcasm or irony or whatever, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not good. So I just was wondering what you felt like, you know, the scriptures say about Jesus and whether he would have a sense of humor. Well, uh, I, I certainly think he'd be a strange human being if he didn't. I, I think it'd be very strange if God has no sense of humor, and yet those creatures who are made in his image all do. I mean, what is a sense of humor? What, what, is our, what are our, our five senses, our, our sight, hearing, smell, and taste, and f- feel? That means we can sense things that are there. If we have sight, we can, we can sense with our eyes that there is light, that there are objects that are within visual range. Uh, with our ears, we can sense sounds. Now, a sense of humor isn't one of the five senses, but it certainly is a sense that there, there is something called humor. And uh, mm-hmm. a person who can't, who has no sense of humor, simply it seems to be impaired. You know, they seem to be impaired by the fact that some things are pretty funny. And they don't have to be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, an awful lot of humor is uh, raunchy, is coarse, is unclean. And Ephesians chapter uh, 5, Paul makes it very clear that we should not be involved in that kind of humor. And I'm sure Jesus never was, of course. But for example... It says in Ephesians 5, 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. As we should be involved in, uh, you know, foolish conversations, coarse jesting, and so forth. On the other hand, uh, you know, there are wry remarks, witty remarks that people sometimes make. I I always enjoy uh, people who've got uh, a quick wit, and I I think that's a gift from God. I don't see it as a gift from Satan. You know, yeah, uh, I, I think you have a good sense of humor. So, it, it, well, not uh, as good as some people, but engaged in well, the well, I'll tell you this. I will tell you this. I'm yeah. not very witty, but I do have a sense of humor in, in that I recognize humor and it makes me laugh. I mean, in other words, I can sense that it is there. I'm not very good at creating humor. Uh, I've never have been very funny, but uh, but I really enjoy people who are. In fact, I was. I a think you down. point out the irony. Um, some of the yeah. the uh, times I've listened to some of your debates and lectures, I think there's been some uh, wry humor and some irony. Well, so, maybe sometimes, yeah, it's yeah. it's not very intentional. But I, I mean, I I I, I ad- actually admire people who are very quick witted because I think that is a gift, uh, and yes, I don't have that. But but the yeah. the thing is, uh, did Jesus ever use uh, irony? Of course he did. Now, did he ever tell a joke? I don't. Th- I don't know. We we don't we don't know what kind of jokes existed back then, and we don't have, we only have a very limited record of Jesus' saints. Really, you know, he was 
preaching publicly and, and hanging out and talking with the disciples privately for about three and a half years. And yet we only have record of 39 different days during that time. I mean, if you take everything that's recorded about him, they all fit into 39 specific days with lots of time between them often. And now what kind of conversations did they have between? I, I don't know. But, you know, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. Well, that was a hyperbole, and it was is meant to be sarcastic and ironic. Mm-hmm. There were prophets mm-hmm. who perished outside Jerusalem, but um, but the irony is, Jerusalem, the holy city, should be the one most, you know, receptive to the prophets. And yet he said, "Yeah, well, it's so so much the opposite that you you'd hardly expect a prophet to die anywhere else at the, than at the hands of the people in Jerusalem." <laughs> right. You know, I mean, right. he said that in Luke thirteen, but. There's, I mean, there's things he said that must have struck people funny, and he might have even said them with a little s- smile. I don't think Jesus mm-hmm. uh, ever started his sermons with a, a, a comical monologue. I, you know, I don't think he was mm-hmm. into doing anything just for the sake of humor. Just like, frankly, I don't. I mean, I, I've, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a very funny person, so I don't ever try to tell a joke uh, or, or say anything just for the sake of humor. Sometimes in telling something that I think is true, it, it's, it's, it's rather a humorous truth, but... But uh, <clears throat> the thing is that when Jesus said that, uh, you know, a, a person who's judging another one is like somebody trying to get a speck out of their friend's eye, but he's got a beam in his own eye. Now, yeah. <clears throat> that deliberately, you know, paints a picture, which anyone who hears that for the first time, and none of us are now hearing that for the first time, we're used to it. But hearing that for the first time and picturing that, a guy with a beam hanging out of his eye is, is going to make people chuckle. And Jesus might have chuckled a little bit himself when he said it. Who knows? I don't think Jesus went around telling jokes, but he, he, did, he did say things that were kind of funny. He talked about a camel going through the eye of a needle. And while some people say that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that camels went through, uh, there's no actual record of that being the case. That's just something preachers say. Uh, as near as we can tell, he was actually talking about a camel going through an actual eye of a needle. Or in Aramaic, the word cable or rope is kind of the same sounding word as camel. Some people say might, a rope going through the eye of a needle, but still, to, to depict somebody trying to thread a needle with, with a rope through it or with a camel, obviously, is, is so absurd. I mean, one of the things about humor is uh, a recognition of or creating the imagery of something absurd. But it's particularly uh, funny if the absurdity really is stating something that's tr- true. You know, lots of times jokes are funny because they are true. And I mean, some of the funniest jokes are someone just stating what's true in an ironic or a funny way. So I don't I I wouldn't say that the limited amount of teaching of Jesus that we have record of is laced with a lot of humor. But I would say it's not absent. And, uh, you know, some people are funnier than others. I don't think Jesus came trying to be funny. But God certainly must right. have a sense of humor. I mean, I don't think lower animals have a sense of humor, but we are made in the image of God, and certainly you know, humor is one of those things we can sense. I mean, even if we're not the type of people to tell jokes or try to be funny, uh, who doesn't watch monkeys playing in a cage at a zoo uh, or kittens, you know, tussling around or whatever? Who, who doesn't look at babies laughing on videos, uh, you know, or cats, you know, you know, climbing into, you know, jars and things like that and doesn't think that's pretty funny, you know? I mean, there are yeah. things in nature that are 
that are just funny. And the, the recognition that they are funny is what we call a sense of humor. There's humor in the situation. We can sense it. We're aware of it. We're not, we're not uh, impervious to it. So yeah, a sense I, of humor I is not a bad thing. I feel like Jesus probably think, thought Peter was kind of funny. I think so. Uh, well, I, I actually think there was probably a lot of humor between them. Now, I, I haven't watched that uh, series, The Chosen, very much. I did see the first season. And it seems to me like, you know, Jesus is occasionally depicted as kind of kidding around with the disciples. And I think that that's realistic. I don't, I don't stand by everything that's in The Chosen. I, 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 no, actually, I'm, not a, no. I'm not really a fan of it. But I did think that was probably not unrealistic when, it, you know, when they're walking along the road and talking and there's, you know, there's, a, there's something clever, uh, something witty or something that, that Jesus might say. I'm sure that he had the ability to do that a lot. And, uh, I, and I don't see anything about that that would be considered to be uh, sinful or uh, low or something that God would frown upon unless God is a joyless spoil sport. But I mean, let's yeah. face it, humor. Yeah. Humor is one of the things that really blesses our lives. I'll tell you something. Last night, something I read really kind of depressed me about somebody I knew. And, and then I was on my email and, or Facebook or something, and there was a page there of Far Side Comics. And I love the far side. So I, I, I started looking through them and I was laughing and, you know, thinking it was pretty funny. And, and eventually I wasn't depressed anymore. Now, I don't usually resort to humor to deal with depression. But uh, let's face it, laughter is a great medicine. Uh, it sure in is. fact, you know, it does good like a medicine, it says in Proverbs. So, I think that's uh, somewhere in, in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So I think your friend who thought God doesn't have a sense of humor, Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. Uh, I think she's the one who doesn't have a sense of humor, probably. Well, I think in her defense, she, she it was a very touchy subject for her, and she did apologize later. And, uh, huh. you know, she kind of realized that she had overreacted to and, oh, okay. and I realized what I said probably struck her wrong. It was a cultural thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> All right. you know, sometimes you get in trouble there. But, yeah. But All good. right. Well, I'm glad Sarah, I don't need to for... worry about not being not being ironic anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, good talking to you. God bless you. Thank you so much. God bless you too. Bye now. All right. Our next caller is Douglas from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Doug. Hi, Steve. Uh, on the on the topic of God's sense of humor, I would like to point out uh, one: the platypus. Uh, yeah, and two, that's pretty funny. I think the image of the whitewashed uh, sepulchre, I think, while is it's a very it's a very harsh condemnation of the Pharisees, it's also a pretty funny image. I'm sure some of the uh, peanut gallery laughed if he said that in a in a crowd. Yeah, yeah, well, it's hard to, hard to know how many of the things Jesus said uh, because we're so used to them. Uh, we don't think of them as funny, but the first time they were heard, they might have sounded pretty funny to people. Uh, what's uh, your question so today? My question was about the phrase in John 3, 5, uh, born of water and born of the Spirit. Uh -huh. I, I, think the, the best, I think the best explanation of it I've heard is that the, um, is that of, uh, the water refers to washing by water of the Word, but I've never liked... I've always felt that that was a weak explanation, even if I, it was the most appropriate one that I've seen. Uh, can you expound on that? 
Yeah, I, I don't think that he's talking about the washing of the word only because that concept, I think, didn't come. Uh, I, we don't know of that the use of that imagery until Ephesians chapter five, and uh, you know that that's pretty late for Nicodemus to be expected to understand the word baptism, which means immersion, uh, but are, are, are born born of water in the words. A lot of people think he's talking about baptism. Now I'm not among them, but a lot of people think when Jesus said you must be born of water and born of the Spirit or you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, or God, he said, um, that he meant you have to be baptized in water and baptized in the Spirit. Now, I, I believe in baptism in water, and I believe in baptism in the Spirit, but I don't see any reason why Nicodemus would be expected to translate the word born into the word baptized. You know, it, it's not impossible that a birth, uh, or that baptism could be seen as a birth, I suppose, but, uh, but that would mainly be among people who have already a theological position that sees, that believes in something called baptismal regeneration, which I don't think uh, Nicodemus would have had a, expect, I don't see Jesus could expect him to understand that. Being born, uh, he said, you have to be born again, and Nicodemus said, do I have to go through the process of going back into my mother's womb and being born again? So he was not thinking of baptism as born. He was thinking of being born literally. And Jesus said, well, you need to be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, whatever born of water means, he's contrasting it with being born of the Spirit. And in the very next verse, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, notice he, he talks about being born of the Spirit in verse 5 and verse 6. In both places, he contrasts being born of the Spirit with a different kind of birth. In verse 5, that different kind of birth is called being born of water. In verse 6, it's called being born of the flesh, which is natural birth. So what I think he's saying is it's not enough to have natural birth. You have to have a second birth, a spiritual birth. Being born of the water, as everyone knows, just before a baby's born, uh, the woman's water breaks, and there's, there's a gushing out of waters that precedes the baby coming out, and uh, natural birth is characterized by such breaking of the waters. Now, for him to refer to natural birth as being born of, uh, of the water and contrast that with being born of the Spirit would simply, it, it'd, be a, it'd be addressing something I think Nicodemus might need some correction about. Nicodemus was a Jew, a high-ranking Jew, and the Jews thought that because they were Jews, and, that, and they were Jews because of their first birth, they were born of Jewish parents and of, of Jewish ancestors, that their birth as Jews instead of Gentiles entitled them to entrance into the kingdom of God, which the Messiah would bring to the Jews. And Jesus said, well, no, being born of the flesh isn't going to help you. And, and Nicodemus had been born of the flesh. That is, as a Jew, he had been born physically uh, and Yet, Jesus said, you need a different birth besides that. Being born of water or born of the flesh, which seem to be parallel terms in verses 5 and 6, is not enough. You've got that, but a man needs to have both. A man needs to be born of water and of the Spirit. And he needs to be uh, not just born of water or not just of the flesh, as he calls it. So I'm, I'm seeing this as a reference to two kinds of birth, physical and spiritual. And that's all, that's all I'm seeing it as... 
All right. Uh, let's see. Let's talk to Jeff from Arkansas. Jeff, welcome to The Narrow Path. Hey, Steve. Good evening. Hi. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've called you a while back and had a question about whether he thought God had a hand in creating each one of us. I've been listening to you pretty regular. Thankful to a friend turning me on to you. Such good to hear all millennial comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question today is, um, I heard you a few weeks ago mention that you would not be in heaven forever, and Jesus wouldn't, that the, the new heaven and the new earth. And I, when I heard you say that, I thought, what did he say? Uh, I always thought that was an interpretation of, you know, premillennials. And uh, I'd just like for you to elaborate on that some more. I thought that, that we would just, uh, Christ return the dead and Christ rise first. We hear alive or caught up with him forever. And in Second Peter, this place goes up in smoke. And I thought that was it. So if you don't mind elaborating on that. And All, right, sure. up and listen. All right. Well, thank you for your call. Thank you. Yeah. In Second in Peter chapter 3, Peter said, we look for a new heavens and a new earth. And yeah, the, this present heavens and earth are going to be burned up and the elements will melt with the fervent heat, he said. And now we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth. That is a new creation, uh, which includes the earth. And uh, so uh, premillennialists, you're right, they do believe that when Jesus comes back, we'll live on this earth for a thousand years. And, but that's not really the end of things. And that's not even the eternal condition as far as they're concerned. After the thousand years, they believe there will be a new heavens, new earth. Uh, the difference between that and the amillennialist is the amillennialist doesn't believe there's that thousand-year interval. They just believe when Jesus comes back, we go directly to the new heavens and the new earth without a, a millennium in between. And uh, so it's not it, it's neither specifically amillennial or premillennial to say that we're going to live on the new earth. We're going to live in the new Jerusalem. And uh, the best information we have about that in Revelation suggests that the new Jerusalem descends from the new heavens. Now, if it's descending, it must be coming toward the earth. That's how we would describe descending. It's not, it's not going to remain in heaven. It's coming out of heaven. It's leaving heaven. Now, right now it's in heaven because it's, it's, the, it's the church. It's the, it's the people of God. Uh, it's the Jerusalem that is above, which is the mother of us all. And, and it's, it says in Galatians 4 and in Hebrews 12, Paul said that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of God and so forth, the church, the general church and assembly of church of the firstborn. Uh, so, so basically the, the church, uh, our citizenship is in heaven right now, but in the new Jerusalem. But when Jesus comes back, I believe Revelation 21 describes the church or the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Well, why is it going to come down? Is it going to just kind of hang somewhere in midair? No, it's coming down to be on the earth. Yeah, the, the meek shall inherit the earth, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5. Uh, he's getting that, of course, from Psalm 37, which repeatedly says the meek shall inherit the earth in Psalm 37. Uh, when God made man, he made them to have dominion over the earth, not to live in heaven. He made man not for heaven. He made man for the earth and the earth for man. And in fact, Adam and Eve would still be here today if they hadn't sinned. You know, they weren't, they weren't made to live somewhere else. They were made to live here forever. But if they sinned, and therefore they had to die. And, uh, and, and God, Jesus came to restore what was lost. Uh, so it, it says in, he, in Romans uh, 4.13 that the promise was made to Abraham and his seed that they'd be the heirs of the world. And in Psalm 2, verse 8, God says to the Messiah, 
Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. And Jesus said, yeah, we're going to, and you meek will reign on the earth too. You'll inherit the earth too. Uh, in Revelation uh, 5.10, the inhabitants of heaven talk, uh, say, we, you know, we've been redeemed from every nation, tongue, and people, and we shall reign on the earth. So, I mean, whether it's Genesis 1, where people are first created, or whether it's Revelation or any of the parts in between, the eternal habitation of the redeemed, including Jesus, is a, a renewed earth. Uh, there's no, nothing in the Bible says that God made heaven for people to live in. In fact, in Psalm 115, verse 16, it said, heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has made for the sons of men. So he makes a distinction. He didn't make heaven for us. That's, that's the Lord's domain, but the earth is what he made for us. He's given the earth to the sons of men. However, of course, the earth has been corrupted by sin, but that's what's going to be changed. It's going to be purified. It's going to be renewed. It's, uh, you know, the curse will be no more, it says in Revelation 21. Now, the curse came on the earth. It didn't come on the heaven. Uh, so there's going to be a new earth where there's no more curse, no more crying, no more death, no more sickness, no more pain. Uh, that's, that's the new earth that's being described there. Uh, so, or the new Jerusalem on the new earth. So that would be, that'd be the case I would make for that. And, uh, you know, I appreciate your calling for clarity on that. Um, we're running out of time and we're not running out of callers very quickly. Let's see. Let's talk to Dan from Michigan. Dan, welcome. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi, Steve. Thanks for taking my call. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I keep hearing the, the term, and by the way, the last discussion was really helpful to me as well, but I keep hearing the term dispensationalism. And frankly, I, I don't have a lot of context for different views of Scripture. Uh -huh. Uh, uh -huh. I just read the scripture, you know, I mean, right. I, I read it and I don't get hung up on all that, but um, I'm really curious if you can just break it down fairly simply. Um, pardon my ignorance, but <laughs> this oh, has sure. been a subject of uh, difficulty. Well, dispensationalism is a system of interpretation of scripture that arose in mm -hmm. the 19th. It arose in the 19th century. We all try to just read the scriptures, but as we do, we notice that certain themes recur. And, we, and trying to fit those themes together in all the places that they recur and make a systematic understanding of those themes is quite, uh, quite a challenge. And, and dispensationalism sees in the Bible the most important recurring theme is Israel, whereas mm -hmm. other Christians who are not dispensationalists see that the most recurring theme in Scripture is Jesus. And so... Mm -hmm. Uh, dispensationalism, which arose in the 19th century, says that the fulfillment of all the promises God made to Israel from Abraham on is Israel in the end times, in a nation in the Middle East, that that's the fulfillment of all God's purposes and promises to, to his people, to Abraham and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, before dispensationalism, and, and any Christian who's not dispensationalist would believe, no, the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham is not Israel, it's, it's Jesus. Now, right. uh, that's the main difference. And therefore, dispensationalism tends to think every time they read something in prophecy or, or whatever, that it has something to do with what's going on in the Middle East in our time. Like, oh, this is the fulfillment of God's purposes. But of course, mm -hmm. if the people in the Middle East aren't following Jesus, then they're no, no more central to God's purposes than anywhere else. God right. is not a God who cares about geography. 
God is mm-hmm. a God who cares about people, human beings. And those humans mm-hmm. who are worshiping Christ comprise his kingdom. And that's his main interest. Right. Uh, and those who are rejecting Christ, it doesn't matter where they are on the planet, rejecting Christ, they're not God's people until they do receive Christ. So uh, God doesn't have two chosen peoples. Uh, the covenants are like marriage covenants. Paul, Paul likens the old covenant to a marriage and the new covenant to a, like another marriage <clears throat> in Romans right. chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And, you know, some people think God has two covenant peoples. Israel is one covenant people. And the church is the other. And, and therefore, they say uh, God has two wives. Uh, they might say God has a wife and Jesus has another wife. But no, mm. no, the same, same people were married to the law in Romans 7 as are married to Christ now. God's people, right. the, the people faithful to God, were faithful to him through the law in the Old Covenant. Many of them right. were Jews. Some of them were Gentiles. And now the same people of God are loyal to him through the new covenant. They're, they follow Jesus now. Again, many of them are Jews, and many of them are Gentiles. It doesn't matter what race they are. God's not a racist. He doesn't care what, who your ancestors were. He cares who you are. And what he's going to judge you by is, are you a follower of Jesus or not? And right. if you aren't a follower of Jesus, it'll do you no good to be Jewish or Gentile. And if you are a follower of Jesus, it makes no difference whether you're Jew or Gentile. So race becomes a non-starter. With God is not a racist, never was. He doesn't judge people by who their ancestors were or what race they are, but where their heart is. Paul made that very clear in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward and of the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and that is circumcision which is of the heart. So, uh, so God's looking on the heart, not on the genealogy of a person when he assesses it. All right. No, All I right. appreciate the explanation, and uh, I'll probably be calling back. I've got related uh, related questions for you, but thanks Great. very much. Well, I'd love to talk to you about them in another program. We are out of time today, I'm sorry to say. Uh, you've been listening to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we are live Monday through Friday at this same time. We are listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can contribute if you want to. Uh, I just suggest you go to our website, The Narrow Path. Dot com and you'll see there how to help us out if you want or just take what's there, the narrowpath.com.